You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. It's September 29th. This week, we're bringing you a special conversation with Rand researchers Heather Williams and Dick Donahue. Before we get into the episode, a brief content warning for our listeners. This discussion you're about to hear focuses on the mental health effects of exposure to trauma, and it includes explicit references to violent and traumatic events. I'm here in the studio today with Heather Williams, Associate Director of the RAND International Security and Defense Policy Program, and Dick Donahue, Director of the RAND Center for Quality Policing. Heather recently co-authored a paper examining trauma in the intelligence community, and she is a former intelligence officer herself. Dick's research focuses on law enforcement issues, including police community relations and officer training recruitment and retention. Before joining Rand, Dick was a decorated law enforcement officer. He's a retired sergeant of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority Police. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. You've both written about the effects of trauma and secondary trauma, and we'll get into the difference between those later in both the intelligence community and in the law enforcement community. And we're here today, not just to talk about that, but also um, to talk about your own personal experiences with both of those. I think let's just start with those personal experiences. You both have really um, very interesting backgrounds from before you came to Rand. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what those were? So I was in the intelligence community for 13 years before I joined RAND. That was seven years ago. Um, and I worked on primarily Iran and um, terrorism, counterterrorism. Uh, I did three tours overseas working directly with special forces in trying to identify um, high-value targets and to um, apprehend or, or kill them. Um, and so, so those were a lot of uh, my experiences that I sort of brought to this work. But uh, since I've been at RAND, I continue to work on issues of terrorism or mass violence. Um, so sort of my potential exposure as an analyst and a researcher um, to issues of potential trauma didn't necessarily end when I, when I joined RAND. And uh, prior to coming to RAND, I was a law enforcement officer. I was a police officer with the MBTA Transit Police Department in Massachusetts. Um, I served there for a number of years before a a life-changing experience that happened over the course of about four days, um, where there was, um, they say, good things come in threes and bad things too as well. Uh, First one being the Boston Marathon bombing itself. So I was a patrol officer working a few miles from the marathon finish line. and, you know, going into work, uh, thinking it was going to be just a, a regular day. Um, that was kind of the first life-changing experience. Um, three days later, my uh, my friend and uh, police academy colleague was uh, was murdered in the line of duty. And two hours later, um, I was in the gunfight with the Sarnayev brothers, um, and I was uh, critically injured. I was uh, nearly dead for um, the better part of an hour. And, uh, you know, for the... Um, you know, maybe save some divine intervention. I'm I'm still here today, and um, you know, had since re- you know, medically retired from the police department, and um, and and come to Rand a few years later. I mean, one thing I've been curious for you, Dick, is um, your trauma was experienced in such a public way. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, here is this very personal experience, and everybody knows about it. How does that affect? how you try to manage it. That just means I, I don't have privacy anymore. You know, when, you're, when your entire life and pictures of, well, my then one kid um, are all over, you know, national news while I'm still in a coma and you wake up and you're like, whoa, hey, things have changed a little bit and I can't move my leg. Um, and then, you know, you have people visiting you, you know, from my senator and the governor and the the head of the transportation agency and every officer in the department and and I'm sitting in a hospital bed in, in a Johnny <laughs> it, it, you know it, it, it really is a lesson in in humility um, like really 
<laughs> probably down, you know, to the lowest level, right? I had people stripping me off in the street and giving me CPR and giving me mouth to mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, being even running into people, my, my, one of my kids, hockey coaches, um, who I didn't even know this whole thing happened. He goes, Oh my God, you, I didn't even put this together. You're Dick Donahue. Like, I am an x-ray tech at, at the hospital you got brought into. I remember you got brought in. Like, we, we worked on you. And he just turned pale as a, like, pale as a ghost. And um, it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it is strange, but I, I don't think um, <laughs> that might be just such an oddity in, it, in itself that it, was, that it was extremely public. Um, I just, you know, don't wish any of my entire experience to, to anyone else and you know you just have to have to deal with it any any way you can other than just uh yeah try to try to try to figure it out and, and do whatever you have to do and lean on the people you have to to uh to get through the next you know minute hour day month and year yeah um both of these communities the intelligence community and the law enforcement community um deal with some very unpleasant things <laughs> And it's a necessary part of the job. And uh, the people in those communities do that so they can keep other people safe and so that other people don't have to deal with and see some of the things that the people in these communities have to deal with and see on a day-to-day -day basis as part of their jobs. Um, but seeing and dealing with these things is not without consequence itself, correct? Um, this is what you call secondary trauma. Can you tell me more about, about what that is? Yeah. So I think in our communities, uh, I know I'm speaking for the intelligence community. Dick can speak for the law enforcement community. Um, even some of the terminology about trauma isn't really directly understood and appreciated. Um, so a lot of people, and not necessarily professionals in this space, but people understand direct trauma, right? You, you were directly involved in a traumatic event. Dick's obviously experienced uh, more than his fair share of direct trauma. Um, but indirect trauma or secondary trauma um, is perhaps underappreciated. And so this is something that a lot of members of the intelligence community get exposed to. Um, let's say you're working really on any kind of issues that are going to involve violence, um, which a, a lot of us do. Um, you might be working on counterterrorism, you might be working on counter narcotics, you might be working um, on a an oppressive regime that systematically uses violence against its, pop against its population. Um, you might be looking at, um, currently, you know, the war in, in Ukraine. And so you are reading material and increasingly listening to or watching um, material about those about the conflicts or about violent events. Um, and so you aren't there directly, you aren't experiencing direct trauma, but there's a cumulative effect of being, um, you know, an indirect kind of witness of these events. Um, and just because you are resilient to it today does not mean that you're resilient to it tomorrow. So there's a, there's a cumulative effect of seeing that kind of content over and over and over again, that can wear down the emotional resilience of a person. To give our listeners an idea of the kind of content that we're talking about, I don't want to be too graphic, but you wrote an op-ed in Politico. And the title of that op-ed is, Don't Tell Your Non-Work Friends About the Decapitations. Um, for our listeners, like this is the, this is the kind of content you see uh, through um, intelligence gathering, and it's just... Um, it's brutal. It's very brutal. Um, when Heather talked about, you know, don't talk about decapitations with your non-work friends. Well, I happened to be at lunch uh, in June, right, right down the street here in um, in Virginia, with some with some DC cops, and I'm out of the loop now. Seven years retired, uh, basically ten years since I've really actively worked on a police department, and you know, go have lunch with a couple guys, and we're actually drinking Coca Cola. For a change, I was kind of, I was kind of like shocked, um, and it's it's me, so retired retired cop, um, my buddy who's a homicide cop, and the, the other guy is a cold case detective, and the other guy at the table works for the sexual assault unit. <laughs> so I mean, we or they talk shop, 
for the better part. I mean, we were there for two hours <laughs> talking shop. And, and uh, I, I think some of it might have been, okay, getting my other buddy who will remain nameless. He might listen in. Uh, getting him back in the loop as he's ready to get back in. Um, but I think some of it too, um, you know, I guess it was good we weren't at, you know, quote unquote choir practice and we were, you know, having soda and, and, and hamburgers, but it was kind of getting some of the, um, you know, the emotions out or the emotional trauma and stress out and, and being able to discuss it. And even some of it that was, you know, and you hear, yes, I didn't believe this person because they're, you know, they've been a, you know, a, a drug user and abuser for a long time and they actually got kidnapped and sexually assaulted. <laughs> and then I had to take the statements. And then we went back on camera. Then we found this person getting kidnapped. And then we, we, we hear these stories over and over again. And it's not like, you know, hey, and then, uh, and then you know, I wrote the report, uh, you know, went home and, and called my, you know, my psychiatrist because that probably didn't, didn't happen. Or, or I went home and I, I got on my – did my breathing exercises and did X, Y, and Z. It was, you know, then I was ordered into a shift. I had to put a uniform on and I had to cover another shift. Or I had to go back to work the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day and hear the same sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, over and over and over again. Um, but it, it was – Maybe an environment where we, where we could uh, talk about, you know, some of the worst things. And I, I think part of it for me too is even on a day to day basis. You know, some of my best friends are still, um, you know, on the force, and you know, my, my my brother's a cop, so I still get I still get a little taste of it, and I still kind of hear some of it. But um, but yeah, naturally, if you if you bring some of those, those are some of the stories you know tell at the dinner table with like mom and dad or or the kids and that sort of thing. I think this. How a lot of people in these communities, in the law enforcement community and the intelligence community, process this stress is with their work colleagues, you know, with their friends. Um, that's who you talk to about it because um, they're a group that understands your experience. And then sometimes they're a group you're legally allowed to talk to. You yeah. know, if you're in the intelligence community and, and law enforcement too, you're just, you're not allowed to discuss a lot of these things with somebody else. And so um, I think. A lot of people process and decompress from stress by using their personal networks, use your family, use your friends, um, use your spouse. Those recourses are not always available to people in our community. Um, And so they're, you know, you do have your work colleagues and that's useful um, to a great extent. That said, you know, as as I've said, this community doesn't actually understand necessarily trauma. um, And uh, they're also experiencing trauma too. So, um, you know, the person you're trying to lean on is also potentially suffering. Um, so there's just, there's not a lot of, of resources, um, available and there still is as much as it's, it's okay to talk about certain things over Cokes or beers or whatever it might be. Um, but there still are boundaries and limitations and stigma inside of these communities. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear from Dick about what some of them are for law enforcement. I know for the intelligence community, um, you you would never – I think there's a real stigma against revealing um, that you're vulnerable, that you're suffering, um, that it's affecting your judgment in any way. Um, Is there like a belief that that could affect your security clearance or – Absolutely. So, you know, the the – Security clearance process has always asked about mental health, uh, historically with very vague and open-ended questions. Um, uh, they've gotten more specific about what those questions are, but there's still a lot of, I think, anxiety about revealing that you might um, have concerns about your own mental wellness, um, which is 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 actually, ironically, just creating more risk for the community because there could be opportunities for someone to acknowledge that they have a problem and seek treatment, and there's no national security risk. But instead, there's such anxiety about it that that they will just try to maybe sort of do self-care or sometimes self-harm in search of self-care, like drinking or other detrimental negative behaviors. Um, and, And that just creates greater risk in the long run. And it's not like there's a network of like classified psychologists and therapists available to help because even if they were, a lot of the way the intelligence community works is on a need-to-know basis. And so if you don't need access to particular information, then you don't have access to it. And so even if someone else 
was cleared, you may not be able to to talk about some of the things that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, that there technically are, you know, counselors and and therapists inside the intelligence community. I mean, they, they they exist. That resource exists. Um, there are concerns about what even I could share with them. So you're absolutely right. Just because you have a clearance doesn't mean I'm allowed to tell you everything at any time in anywhere, any circumstance. Um, you know, but there are employee. Uh, assistance services in all of the agencies. Um, but there are different cultural differences um, in the agencies. And there's just a lot of uncertainty for the individual and, and um, the individual who might be uh, managing, uh, uh, you know, sort of their own tra- uh, stress, um, their own potential traumatic exposure, and the individuals around them. Like, I don't want to necessarily say anything about my colleague, even if I'm concerned about them, that could compromise their ability to keep their job. Um, so just that, I think, does not – it's it's not a community um, – <laughs> Uh, that's going to be that outspoken about these things. And there's not a culture of mental wellness within the community. Dick, how was how was that your experience too with law enforcement? So uh, similar, and instead of clearance, it's gun and badge. It's it's if you talk to somebody, if you seek help, if you're perceived as needing that to the you know to the uh, extent that someone's going to get the help for you that your gun and badge are, are going to be taken away from you. Um, I remember literally being in the hospital with tubes sticking to me. People say, don't say, don't talk to anybody about what happened. They're going to take a gun. They're going to take your badge. They're going to take your job. Um, didn't, didn't happen. But that, that is the longstanding, um, you know, generational, you know, generation after generation, um, you know, law enforcement cultural belief. It's that if, if you seek treatment, um, they're going to take away your gun. They're going to take away your badge. And that means you can't work. It means you can't work your regular job. You can't work overtime. Um, and, and, and you're out. Um, so there's, there's a, um, a, a fear in that. And, and obviously I said it didn't happen to me. You know, um, my department came and, and gave me my badge, <laughs> which was nice, even though, um, you know, for, for, you know, two months I was in hospitals. Um, I wasn't going to go arresting anybody. Um, they didn't give me a, a gun right away, but I think, um, you know, for, for good measure, again, um, you know, sleeping in hospital rooms for for for, for two months uh, didn't didn't really need one. Um, so e- even in in my case, being through the situation, being you know very physically injured as well, um, that it just simply didn't happen. And then when I was you know recovered, you know, quote unquote, enough, I did end up retiring. You know. Went back to the range, qualified my duty weapon. We we changed weapons, so they gave me a new one, and and it, there was there were there were no issues. Um, so even kind of dispelling some of those rumors, but certainly having heard them from other officers beforehand, um, and even officers during those first few days when I'm just barely getting better and just you know barely surviving a a, a gunfight, I'm hearing. Hey, be careful what you say. Be careful what you do because they're going to take your job. There's such a culture of being stoic and being um, it just being part of the job. And it is part of the job. But, um, you know, I find it interesting, Dick, that you say this because I do wonder if for cops, it's like that gun and the badge is even more a part of their identity. Like, you know, it, it people in the intelligence community are very anxious about their security clearance. Nobody wants to lose your security clearance. We all recognize that that's a critical thing for you to work. But um, I don't know. I mean, you, you're still you're still who you are. It would be it would be a problematic for your employment. But I feel like to be a cop. Yeah, and even in retirement, it's it's important. I mean, I remember being anxious. Like I'm out processing. Where's my retiree badge? Right? Where's my retiree badge? I, I have one. I still have one. I still have. You know, all my ret- retiree gear and, and, and ID just to have that, that, that tie back, right? To, to being in that, even the, the, with all that I, I miss or like or dislike, uh, or, or have packed away that I still do have that, um, that, that one thing. Um, interestingly enough, when I, when I was thinking about, you know, talking about this subject, I think about, um, one of the things that was given to me on day one of the police academy and given to everyone in our academy was a book called Emotional, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. It was written, I don't know, probably 30, maybe 30 plus years ago. 
And it went over everything from stress management to things like, I'm sure you've experienced hypervigilance, right? For everything like, hey, when you go to a restaurant, make sure you sit with your, you know, facing facing the door, right? Don't wear a seatbelt because if you need to jump out, you don't want to get caught that one time, right? Um, it did, they didn't say to not wear the seatbelt in the book. But just some of these actions that, that you think about. Some of these, hey, when I'm on the job for a year, all of my friends are going to be on the job. I'm not, I'm not even going to have a tie back to my life beforehand, right? I'm going to eat, sleep, and drink this culture up. Um, and some of it was trying to be like, you know, you got to distance yourself from it. You have to have um, some of these other mechanisms, either organizationally or, or personally. You need to have the hobbies, even when you're working 80 hours plus a week, plus commuting, plus sleeping in your car, um, that sort of thing. Um, and it was just like, I feel like that book kind of still rings true every once in a while. I still have it up on my bookshelf. I'll take a peek at it every once in a while. But I think about it even, even when I'm at, um, you, you know, working on some of these, these, these wellness issues, um, here at Rand, um, or when I was at a site visit for something completely unrelated and I'm working with federal law enforcement officers and we're getting up at 3.30 in the morning to go and do work. And I, and I, I just asked them, I said, how many days a week do you get up at 3.30 in the morning? To, to do your job and then get home at, you know, five in the afternoon. It was like, well, I do this, you know, five days a week. And I was like, well, how do you, how do you cope with that? Cause this is terrible. I'd rather work overnights than wake up at three, three in the morning. And they're like, how, do, how does your, how does your family deal with this too? Right. You have, you have kids or a wife or a significant other. How do they deal with that too? And what's that? I don't know if that's secondary trauma or just the secondary impacts of, of a certain type of, of, of employment, and I know, like you've been, you've been, you know, deployed as well, right? It's not, um, you know, not an easy thing to have to, uh, to have to deal with all that, and then think about the, you know, secondary effects on on other folks. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I thought was really interesting about this work that we did on trauma in the intelligence community is that um, as important as the potential trauma exposure is the environment that one is in when these things happen. So, you know, as important as to whether or not someone can deal with traumatic stress is whether they're working long hours or whether they're working nights, um, or whether they're working for a supportive manager versus, you know, a terrible manager. Um, all of those dynamics really affect someone's resilience to stress. And, and the intelligence community, like law enforcement is, can be really high stakes and a really, really intense environment. So I think that rings so true. At the same time, one thing I think is an interesting difference between our communities is this maybe concept of boundaries. I think, yeah, cops don't ever really get to turn off. You're sort of always a cop. Um, and you, you live that identity day in and day out. Whereas if you're an intelligence officer, boundaries are actually very present and very important for your life. You know, my work stayed at work. It did not go home with me. So yeah, I worked long hours, but when I walked out the door, I had to have hobbies or, or, but there were kind of like facets. negative consequences to both sides of that coin where like you felt it was hard. I mean, and you couldn't talk about some of the things with other people. And Dick, you, it's hard to turn off and have a life outside of, of the, the work. Uh, it's interesting how both sides of that coin can contribute to this environment. That's right. Yeah. I, but I think they do make it a little bit different, like how it presents itself. And I, I think that is really important for our field. Um, we understand a lot about secondary trauma, and there are some universal truths about it um, that, you know, practitioners who understand it can bring it to different fields. But there are these unique aspects to these fields that we need to understand a little bit better. So um, this work that we did at RAND, I think, is some of the only work that's ever been done on um, secondary trauma in the intelligence community. And it has resonated so powerfully. We hear so much from, I hear so much from people about how much it affected them, how much they related to it. And it's hopefully started an important conversation, but one that needs specific study. Like someone needs to specifically think about what this means for this field. I think there's been a little bit more about that done in law enforcement and first responders generally. There's a better understanding of the fact that there are, are risks here. Um, it doesn't mean that there isn't still more to be done. There's a lot to be done on the research end. And, and I, I was thinking there was a report that came out from the Department of Justice and, you know, the Appendix B or whatever it was, was here are 
30 different bullet points of of possible you know wellness health and wellness solutions from from everything uh you know from from EAPs to um you know, using using mobile apps to I mean anything you could think of to to critical incident stress debriefings, which um, there's there's research already on on some of that. Um, it, it, you know, saying they're ineffective, but um, agencies keep keep using them. Um, I guess I could go off on a, on a tangent there, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll save my breath for, for another day. But um, I, I thought it was really interesting that they said here are here's a laundry list of of potentially helpful things, but. <laughs> They all need research and evaluation. Every single one of them do. So, um, whether or not that will happen in one fell swoop, I'm, I'm not really um, optimistic about that. But, but, but I am at least optimistic that that look, um, we're considering all these things across the spectrum of law enforcement. It wasn't just DOJ for just feds. It was for the you know the, the Department of One. Uh, you know, to NYPD or, or the Border Patrol. Every this this counts for everybody. And I guess that just points to the newness of the field and the newness of the research. That this is something that people are realizing applies to to a lot of different communities. Yeah, or the resistance of that community to. I mean, mm-hmm. these aren't necessarily that new. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. some comments, like um, some concepts, like moral injury, are still a little bit newer. Understanding. Um, that moral injury and the sort of these risks that might exist to harm an individual emotionally, mentally by sort of violating their core ethics um, or putting them in these situations where they're kind of feeling that the activity is immoral. So that that's a relatively new concept. But um, I think there's these are um, both communities that have been frankly, more masculine communities. Um, they are communities that have historically had a specific sort of demographic type. Um, and and it, it's just a not, not communities that are necessarily um, oriented towards their feelings. These are tough, tough communities. Um, and so I think it's taken some time for there to be an appreciation and a bit more understanding brought to the work culture. Yeah. You wrote in the paper that there is a small community where these um, traumatic experience have been like taken into account a little bit more, um, a little bit more holistically. And that's the, the drone operators community. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the only places that research has been done is um, drone operators, and um, that's been done often at the Air Force, um, drone operators. And so there is an appreciation, I think, of that that sort of uh, function, that job function, and how that can be difficult. Um, <clears throat> you know, drone operators, uh, for those that could have, are unaware, drone operators are often here in the United States, you know, they aren't even deployed forward alongside um, troops. And um, they're they're seeing these feeds from platform, unmanned platforms like predators um, of what's going on in the battlefield. And sometimes they're even making decisions um, like they're determining, yes, that is the enemy target. You can fire the missile um, on that drone. Um, and so th- they're, they're kind of one foot in the war, but they're physically out of the War. And so those were very difficult jobs um, for a lot of the service members who were doing them. You know, they would be essentially they're virtually in Iraq and Afghanistan during the conflict and then go home to their families. You know, um, at least as um, Dick was mentioning, my deployments, um, deployments are are very surreal. You can't really talk about it, but you're in it. It's a very different environment. I remember coming home from my deployments and being confused that anything had happened in the three or four months that I was gone. Oh, someone got married or engaged or something. Because for me, time stood still when I got on that plane to go to Iraq. And and the real world restarted when I got home. And so that did, I think, allow me to have some sort of emotional buffer. Um, you know, May have meant I wasn't processing what I was experiencing there, um, but you didn't. Ha- but you could. Be, this isn't it the wasn't real so world. Close to yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But you know, a lot of drone operators haven't had that luxury. Um, <clears throat> so, so there is some research that's been done in that in that space, but not really for the intelligence community broadly. What would you both 
wish you had. Um, so sort of like what what would you have wanted to have um, to feel supported? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I do think there are well-meaning intentions that I've tried to give the community that. And um, this is an, an example where execution is important. So um, my third tour um, overseas, when I came back from my deployment, I was required to sit down with a psychiatrist. And that hadn't happened previously. That was clearly kind of a new requirement as they realized that maybe this is something we should be doing. Um, but it was useless. It was a waste of time, right? I'm, I'm going to sit down. I, I was, I feel like I hadn't even out processed yet. And I sat down with a person I've never met before, um, you know, for 10 minutes. And they asked me, you know, how's everything? You know, yeah, I'm fine. I don't know you. I'm not going to reveal my deepest, darkest secrets to you, essentially, stranger. There's no actual trust or rapport that's been built with this person. And so it was just really pro- forma um so but i still believe well-intentioned just badly executed um so i think what i would have wanted was um to know to know what was okay like to understand this is a person that you can talk to here's the parameters of the conversation just like you might know like you have a rough sense of what your priest or what your lawyer is going to do with information right almost like a privacy bill of rights yeah, it's not a it's not a gotcha kind of scenario. Um, it is a, a, a serious debrief, but sort of like you want to be walked through like what what that person's going to do with that information, what's going to happen. I sort of um, saw the same thing. I worked on a documentary several years ago on traumatic brain injury in the military, and it wasn't associated with brand, but um, it was about. Um, uh, service members who sustain like TBIs and come back. And that's kind of like another lasting direct trauma that they have. And, and it's hard for them to talk about because the TBIs lead to, to things like PTSD and, and things like that. They don't know who they can talk to about it. They don't know what happens if they do talk to someone. Um, Dick. <laughs> it hits home a little bit, right? Yeah. With memory and physical and uh, other mm -hmm. defects that are, that are longstanding. Yeah. This was a good, it was a good project. Um, the Marines and the Navy at the time were trying a couple of new things um, using like holistic uh, centers of excellence that focused on things like um, yoga practices and acupuncture and just like things that the military hadn't previously tried to do before. Um, and they were having some success with it, which was interesting. Yeah. So interesting. You said like, you know, what, what, what could help you? And I was like, well, you know, you just mentioned some of these these kind of new age kind of things. Yeah, it just um, it seems like hippy dippy kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. But like, For lack yeah. of a better term, yeah, that you know, if you talk to Dick Donahue and like in 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 2012, you know, what 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 do we have in terms of things, right? I mean, I went home like the day before Christmas. I think the day before Christmas Eve, so the 23rd, and and I, I got ordered into a shift, and I was like, great, I want to go home and see my my kid who was young and, and, and my wife and get ready for Christmas and uh, somebody got their throat slit at a train station and I had to, you know, shove my hand in somebody's throat and this other guy's getting arrested and uh, then I had to just, you know, hey, got to write a report and, and, and go home. Um, and then, you know, hey, it's Christmas. Fantastic. Let's like wrap the gifts and stuff. Um, and, and, and thinking back to what was there, I just, there was stuff. I, I just don't know what was there, right? All, all I knew you, is that you mean like it, resources, there resource, resources. I mean anything. I, I don't know. Whatever is offered. All, all my. I guess um, other than kind of working the you know sixteen hour days, four days a week um, was you know. Thankfully, we had a, a department gym where I would hit the gym or go for a run before work. I'd run you know thirteen miles before work and then go work you know twelve or sixteen hours. And then really be tired at the end of the day. <laughs> During which time you're on your feet and in and out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just with the, with the physical pounding of stuff, too, and wearing the gun belt and all that, you know, I could complain, but we're not here to do that. But it was – I think that that was my outlet was, was doing that, which is also difficult when you get basically put in the hospital for months and then I can't run to this day. So it's like, hey, that that's, that's taken away. And I think only by being in a, a really – traumatic event 
um, and being so like nearly dead, like very critically injured, uh, was when you learn about things. You learn about like what your leadership is going to do if you're in a situation like this, right? Who's going to take care of your family? Who's going to watch your kid? Um, who's going to get somebody from the airport that's coming in here? Uh, who's going to make sure you get the best medical care? Um, who's going to offer you? I don't even know what Reiki is to this day, but I, I did it. I don't, I don't know what it is. Or like acupuncture. I did those things. I have like needles in my ears. What is this? Will this help me with my pain? I'll, I'll try whatever, right? Um, and it was learning about uh, all these different things like department chaplain or like local chaplain or, or whomever. Um, you know, I think by way of being involved in a major incident that was covered in, you know, international news kind of sped these things uh, along um, because you don't know until you, until you need to know. Um, if, if you need these things and it, it really ranges from everything from like, Hey, what do I do? How do I file for disability insurance? Who's going to make sure I get, get paid yeah. when I'm out? Um, cause I hadn't planned for all these things. Right. So it, it was, it was really learning on the fly from not just like the, the mental, but the physical, but all these other things, you know, downstream to paying the bills to childcare to, you know, being, I guess, you know, physically normal and able to do policing to not being able to do that and, you know, living with the disability, living with, you know, short and long-term and long-lasting effects of a disability um, and, and real, you know, life changes with that. Um, you, you know, you, you, some of those things, I don't think you're going to, um, one would one would normally or rationally want to be planning or, or thinking about or talking about, but I think that's also part of, you know, coming up with these, um, protective factors. So if if and when or if when you are exposed to trauma whether it be um you know physical trauma or or the mental trauma or secondary trauma that you have some of uh of the things whether it be you know at home at the agency level at you know the personal level to you know s- sleep, diet, exercise, all these sorts of things um that, that you're ready or that you, you can take on these challenges or that you can reach out to the right person at the right time to do it. I never thought about that, this idea that for law enforcement, the, the sort of physical aspects could be a really good coping mechanism, right? Fitness and then the physical demands of the job. But yet you're in a, a job at really high risk of physical injury. And so when that happens, you've lost one of your main coping mechanisms, I also think that my community is maybe a little better structured to deal with this than than Dick's community, than law enforcement, because the intelligence community um, is is pretty structured and consolidated. It, you know, um, th- there's there's a lot of questions that we are we haven't even really gotten to is what about these contractors who have security clearances, but you know wouldn't get all of the sort of um, part of an agency. Yeah, so the benefits they, yeah. you'd get is from federal employment. That's a huge issue. But but let's just start with the federal employees. You know, there's only uh, you know 18 agencies for them, and so uh, they they've got this structure in place where you could be getting services through your employer. Um, whereas law enforcement is such a sprawling enterprise. And then even if you know what a best practice is, then you have to try to figure out how to disseminate it amongst, what, 19,000 law enforcement organizations. So Exactly. And, and, and I think that, that that's, that's part of the problem, right? If you have a great you know, peer-to-peer program, right, where you're finding this works, that's sustainable at a, at a, at a large agency. But, you know, there's agencies of one. There's agencies of five you know everything from you know the most rural place to you know right right in 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 Washington D.C. Um, that and, and that what might work or be sustainable in one place um, might not be somewhere else, um, it, which is which can be you know certainly problematic. Um, what I have seen though too is that if you ask, people will come. <laughs> so even folks from from some of these larger places um, or larger peer support networks. Um, they are willing to to reach out if if they're asked, but they have to know about it too. So if they don't know about it, they can't help. We we found that in some of the response we got to the piece that we wrote about the intelligence community that um, organizations that support veterans 
came to us because they'd never sort of thought about this community, right? But there are, there's a lot of um, nonprofits, private organizations that are here to try to help law enforcement officers, to help veterans, uh, but spies, eh, you know, not, not so much. Um, and especially in the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there were an incredible uh, number of our intelligence officers who are forward deployed who were there working alongside um soldiers and so and and sailors and service members and the, you know the military has structures for this the military has people like chaplains there are like very formal services in place to yeah they're formal services and there's cultures that sort of understand who that person is and that they're available to you and how to use them um and those don't exist uh, you know they're not the same parallel sort of services for the intelligence community yeah and dick you were saying that that structure really is not there you or if it was if it if it is there you didn't know that it was there beforehand and that i mean personally i didn't even think about it i just thought about my next shift yeah yeah, yeah. my schedule for the next couple days getting my workout in i mean that was that was my (laughs) that was my way to decompress and not you know uh you know, lose it for, for for lack of a better term. It was like, I need to make sure I get that exercise in the middle of my shift because I'm working all the time. So there's actually one thing I want to ask. I know we're running short on time, but, um, you know, one thing I've looked at is um, law enforcement and, and suicide and suicide, even suicide data collection wasn't even formal until very recently. Um, and, and, a, and a not-for-profit had to, had to really start and get the ball rolling and say, and, and start collecting, data and stories on and, and you know they're confidential and that's shared by the family but on on you know officers that 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 die by suicide um whether or not re- related to the job or not or 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 somehow factored in um that it took a long time right we you know the the, the law enforcement community knew, knew it was an issue um i think everybody knew uh knew of somebody um, either at a department or a neighboring department or academy classmate, um, where, where this happened, um, but it took a long time for for some of the, you know, the the focus and the data collection to come to light on that. Um, it is now kind of becoming national. It, well, it certainly is becoming national, and it's supported by, um, you know, all the, the the major you know law enforcement trade organizations and unions and what have you, the folks that are that are involved in a lot of decision makings. Um, and I, I know that in the law enforcement community, but is that something that's even being discussed or or considered for the for the for the intelligence community? I think um, you know there's a there's sensitivities around people's uh, personal records in the intelligence community. Right. So there's um, there's a lot of uh, privacy kind of concerns. I think that makes it really difficult to even understand um, how many potential suicides there's been. There was a, a relatively prominent suicide um, a few years ago in the sense of a, a, a fairly senior person was in the was news on in the CIA. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think, sadly, those kinds of events are ones that can prompt a conversation about it. Um, you know, this was a, a circumstance where it seems that many of his colleagues were unaware that that there may have even been suicide ideation. So it caught individuals by s- surprise and shocked many of them. Um, you know, it, one thing that's interesting is we heard suicide brought up in some of the interviews we did for this report in the context of um that was situations where there might be recognition of a traumatic, uh, a traumatic exposure, right? So, so I heard managers say, well, if someone committed suicide, then I would understand that I needed to bring in, uh, employee support for my staff. Like that, that I understand is that's a secondary trauma exposure that we should be talking about. Um, but that was sort of the only example. It was only that circumstance. It was, you know, th- that very personal, instance um there wasn't necessarily for example an acknowledgement that well what happens if you ask that person to watch hours and hours and hours of isis decapitation videos to look at you know techniques tactics signatures of isis what do you you know maybe you think that should be what if they are having to look at um you know 
pictures and footage from the cartels of uh, atrocities they've committed in order to intimidate the civilian population, try to identify which cartel it is or, you know, just to, because that's the report you read and that's the material that came in with it. Um, I mean, the work is serious work. Yeah. Um, and so there's an appreciation that it's serious. There's an appreciation that that there's heavy content in it. Um, but I just think there isn't exposure and awareness of the mental health risks that that brings. Um, even I saw that even with very compassionate managers who really cared about their people and wanted to support them, they just, it just wasn't in their list of things they were thinking about, you know, this, um, that, hey, that's something I should be considering how that's affecting my staff. And then I think something that's really important to keep in mind for secondary trauma, I know I said it earlier, but that there's a cumulative effect of it. And so, um, just because you were able to do the job yesterday does not mean that you can do the job today. It does not mean that you can do the job tomorrow. Um, and I think it can be really hard for employees who are coping with this, you know, that as that resilience starts to slowly break down, as they become sort of more emotionally fragile to it, to recognize what's happening and understand what they can do to try to help because they just want to do their jobs. I mean, the intelligence community is such a patriotic, dedicated workforce. Um, and I feel like so many people are just going to blame themselves or not understand what's happened and just try to put their head down and push through. Uh, and that is, you know, that that's not the only technique that's not necessarily going to help them um, and, and, and help them when they really do need something else. Yeah. What can these communities do so that the individuals in them can be supported? I mean, I, I think awareness can go a long way in the intelligence community. Understanding what secondary trauma is, understanding how to describe it. Um, if you're experiencing it, being able to articulate that, having a vocabulary that you understand, that someone that can help you also understands. I think that is actually very powerful and very important. Um, I think then there needs to be services available to you. So there needs to be sufficient employee support sort of structures, employee assistance structures. I'm not sure whether they are sufficient now in the intelligence community. No one's ever done a study on that. Um, so whether or not there are sufficient services, but there need to be services and people need to feel like that it's it's a not a choice between getting help and keeping their job. So people need to feel confident that they can get support uh, without having to take on this great personal risk. And so I think that can happen through policies being transparent um, through also just helping people maybe with some examples, understand what are situations where someone has sought mental health treatment in the intelligence community and it has not meant that their clearance been taken away. So Dick, you know, told about how talked about how he still got to keep his badge, you know, even though he went through this experience. And so having those stories that people understand that that's not they're not making that trade off up front when they even start to like ask the question. Um, and then I think there's a lot that could be done in making sure that these issues are things that we train our managers about. We talk to them about it. They understand what this is. They understand what resources are available to them. They understand how to see um, signs that someone is struggling to manage traumatic stress so that they can make sure that they get the help that they need. Um, I think that all of these things could be really helpful towards cultivating sort of a culture of mental wellness inside the IC. And following on that, and, and speaking from the law enforcement lens, I'm, I'm still involved uh, outside RAND in, in police training in, in officer safety and wellness. And I think they really go, you know, you know, hand in hand. I talked about building up some of your protective factors. It's it's kind of encouraging a, a healthy culture that really hasn't existed or partially exists. It might exist within the individual, but certainly not across the 19,000 law enforcement agencies, certainly not within certain agencies or under certain managers or under certain conditions um, as well. So, um, you know, I, I think of it, you know, when I go on the road, it's, it's, it's everything that, um, that I did wrong and right. <laughs> Cause I didn't wear my vest every day. Stupid. Right. I will say that's idiotic. I didn't sleep a lot. Sometimes I would sleep four and a half hours, then go back into work, five hours, go back into work. I had a baby at home. I'd sleep in a different room on the couch 
and then going to work. Not the best decision. And then be then tell my partner, hey, I, why don't you drive today? Because, you know, I, I, I feel like I've had a couple of drinks. That's how tired I am. <laughs> and, and then, um, so again, it, it, it's, it's, it's knowing um, what to do, but then also, you, you know, doing it. It's, it's the, the sleeping, the eating healthy, having a, a healthy, you know, uh, lifestyle, whether it be, you know, uh, physical fitness, but then there's the, the, you know, the, the mental fitness aspect of the, of these things too, whether it be, um, you know, uh, even, even from, I think Heather, you mentioned the, the supervisory role that, that reaching out, the recognizing the signs that, that somebody might need a day off or might need to go home early or might need to talk to somebody, um, and not being afraid to have that conversation. Because I think that's been one of these, you know, there's, there's tons of stigma in the law enforcement community that's, that's led to poor outcomes, that's led to bad uses of force, that's led to, um, accidents, that's led to killings, that's led to domestic violence, that's led to firings. And, and I, I mean, I know people that have been involved in that. Just, uh, off the top of my head, this led to, um, y- you know, uh, alcohol abuse and, and substance abuse. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking uh, I, I have people's phone numbers in my phone where I'm like, I, I know this, this has happened to these people. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, the police profession as, as, as a brotherhood, you know, man or woman, doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a brotherhood. Well, you know, I think we need to, to, to think about, okay, if it's a brotherhood, well, we need to take care of this person. Um, and sometimes that means, um, having those 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 difficult decisions, or maybe asking them to turn in their gunner badge for for a little bit of time, or or taking a few days off to, um, you know, to 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 mentally regroup or physically, you know, uh, regroup from something. I think there's you know some 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 small incremental changes, and I know I rattled off a lot of different things, um, but it, it could be a a extremely mundane, boring job. Five minutes later, you're not going to come home for, for 24 hours because of, of what's going on at work. Um, so it's difficult to plan for all that, but, um, you know, really building up these, these, these protective factors and, and, and minimizing your risks. I sound like a nerd now, right? Um, I sound, I, I sound like some of the, some of the reading I've done, but, 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 you know, as, as you've done, I've, I've, I've walked the walk, I've talked the talk and, and I've, uh, I've only learned through my own mistakes, um, and I guess to, to some extent, some minor triumphs um, along the way. I think they're they're both. We both come from really insular communities, and they're sort of trust based communities. There's sort of a fraternity aspect. You mentioned brotherhood. I think that um, all of those uh, traits can be negative potentially towards uh, reporting communicating needs, acknowledging these things, you know, creating sort of this stigma-based culture. There's a positive opportunity with all of those traits too, right? If you can kind of push those values towards um, and destigmatize some of this towards like, hey, we trust each other and you needing help does not mean I don't trust you and I, you know, I'm going to take care of you and you are part of this community. So I do think it's making sure that all of those values that were channeling the way in which they can be used positively and mitigating the way in which they they could channel negatively. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for sharing your stories and being on the show and for all the research you do and all the work you do. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics that Heather and Dick and I discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.